Bookstuck with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Charles Dunst, author of the new book, Defeating the Dictators, How Democracy Can Prevail in the Age of the Strongman. Uh, Charles, welcome to Bookstack. Thanks for having me on. And congratulations on the book. So how can democracy prevail in the age of the strongman? First off, I mean, my broad argument is a little bit different, I think, from many of the autocracy books out there that talk about, well, what's gone wrong in democracies? Why are the democracies declining? Why do we get the rise of illiberal populists and whatnot? I really focused on the fix and on the solutions. And my, my fairly simple answer here is providing a roadmap for good governance because good governance within democracies will actually make sure that we can keep democracy where it already exists. That when people actually believe the system is working for them, they will continue to bless that system and arguably bless the system more than they are today. And you will have fewer of these illiberal populists kind of rising and trying to take power and then doing away with liberal institutions from the inside. And secondarily, when democracies like the United States, the United Kingdom, Japan, South Korea, these strong, rich democracies around the world, when we perform better, more people around the developing world will look to us and say, well, huh, maybe that should be our model for the next 40, 30, 50 years rather than you know, Singapore or rather than China. I mean, I can tell you as a former journalist in Southeast Asia, you, you'll hear the Southeast Asians say, well, we want China's double digit growth rates or we want to be like Singapore because look at how effective Singapore is. Whereas you know, three prime ministers in three months in the UK is not exactly, not exactly inspiring. So that is the broad argument of of the book, and we can get into more of the specifics and kind of each item on this roadmap. But basically, the argument is a tangible roadmap for good governance to combat autocracy at home, which will then make democracy more attractive abroad in the long term. Yeah, it's interesting because the book actually doesn't begin with one of these uh, democracies. It actually starts with Singapore. And in many ways, that gets to the heart of the dilemma in the book that Here you have a highly effective society uh, for the privileged and uh, what you describe as pretty good for most citizens. But of course, it's an autocracy. Yeah, absolutely. And that is really the contradiction at, at the heart of the dilemma and at the heart in many ways of the book of basically thinking, well, how can we reconcile the fact that some autocracies today seem to have figured out a way to deliver for their people? And of course, it is Singapore, that is the UAE, that is Saudi Arabia. To some extent, not certainly not the same way, it is China, and it's a very different challenge than the autocracies of the past. Whereas nobody went to the Soviet Union in the 1980s and came back to New York or came back to London and said, wow, Moscow was amazing. It was, wow, look at the bread lines or look at how ineffective Soviet governance is. Whereas the strong autocrats of today, the strong autocratic governments of today, seem to actually be able to have some form of good-ish governance. I mean, certainly not governance I would want, but effective governance without liberty. And that is a very, very much a new challenge. And that is why I opened up with Singapore, because Singapore is the exception and that I would argue it's probably the best governed autocracy. Certainly, I think it's better governed than the Gulf states, certainly better governed than China. And Singapore is the exception in that it has no natural resources, whereas people can point to Saudi Arabia or the UAE and say, well, they got rich because they had oil. And there's some validity to that. Of course, you know, having oil is not a guarantee that you'll get rich. It, it takes functional state institutions and strong leaders to actually take resources, take those resources and turn them into wealth. But Singapore has none of that. And Singapore is what it is today because Lee Kuan Yew and his government and the governments that have followed have basically invested in their people, have invested in having strong, stable macroeconomic policy, 
investigate infrastructure, all of these things that made Singapore the attractive and effective cis country it is today, even if it is an autocracy. So that's why I focused on Singapore, because at least in the conversations I've had in the UK, in the US, most of, most of Europe, even parts of Asia, that Singapore is the model for them. Where certainly some people say, well, Dubai's great, or wow, Shenzhen's great. It is Singapore that people send, tend to think of, well, this actually kind of looks and talks and sounds like a democracy, but isn't one. And it's super effective, super clean. And it, it seems to be more attractive to many people than the Chinas, than the Saudis of the world, largely because Singapore is obviously a bit more cosmopolitan, a bit more liberal on a, on a variety of issues. So that really is why why I opened up with Singapore, because it is what I what I call the autocratic exception. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you use that word attractive there, that, I mean, you describe uh, Singapore as authoritarianism light, and we can't really make up our mind what we think, because on the one hand, yes, it is authoritarianism, on the other hand, you know, the countries like the US and the UK remain close allies, that we go on holiday to places like Dubai, for example, we allow countries like uh, the UAE and Singapore to buy our, well, what I would call football clubs, our American listeners will call soccer clubs, and so on. So there's a, there's a kind of an ambiguity, and, and actually there's a historical parallel, it seems to me, that kind of goes back to the 1920s too, that a lot of the way in which we talk about uh, Singapore is the way that, that we used to talk about Italy and Mussolini in the 1920s. That same kind of respect for modernism and kind of everything looking as if they've everything looking as if it's kind of organized and and so on and we kind of turn a blind eye to the authoritarian aspect that's a really interesting point and i think it is true but i also think it is at the kind of the the depth of the problem where if you're a policymaker sitting in washington or westminster and you're thinking well how am i going to make human rights and democracy a big part of my foreign policy it's a massive challenge because most countries on earth are not democracies. And if you say, well, I'm only going to engage the democracies, you're limiting yourself to a very small club of mostly can mostly North America, mostly Europe, a few dots in Asia, you know, one or two, a few dots in Africa, a few dots in Latin America, but it's a very small club. And you're basically cutting yourself off from much of the world and frankly where much of the world will be, I think by the, by 2100 by the end of the century. 75% of the world's population will live in Asia and Africa, and there are reasons to assume that most of them will not be living in democracies. So it is this ongoing tension of, well, we care as, you know, as the West. We care about democracy. We care about liberal values. But we understand that we can't have no relationship with autocracies. And I, I think that's okay. I mean, I think the argument I made in the book is, you know, sure, the United States should have a relationship with Vietnam. We should have a relationship with Singapore. But we have to make sure that those relationships are actually serving our national interest. And I think for Vietnam, the national interest there has been well. Vietnam is also somewhat hesitant about China. They, they're kind of willing to be a U.S. security partner, which helps uphold the U.S. order kind of in, in the Indo-Pacific. And secondarily, trade with Vietnam is beneficial to the United States for a variety of reasons. And I think that's a pretty solid example, even if Vietnam is, you know, a one-party state without an excellent human rights record, of, of course. But yeah, the, the interesting question, I mean, I am despite being an American, I am a soccer, a football fan, and I always joke. I mean, I'm a Tottenham supporter for, for my sins. My and, condolences. Yeah, thank you. But I mean, it was funny, like two weeks ago, maybe two months ago on, on Twitter and whatnot, there was this rumor that Qatar was going to take over Tottenham. And all the Tottenham fans were saying, great, you know, no, hum whatever, I'll overlook the problems because I want to win and I want the money. And I don't have a great answer on how to handle that tension. I, it is this kind of question of, well, where do you draw the line in terms of engaging autocracies where right now, I think most countries are drawing that line with regard to China and saying, well, we shouldn't sell sensitive technology to China. We shouldn't sell 
high-tech semiconductors that could be used for military purposes or used for things like AI. We're trying to crack down on corruption and some of these financial flows that you know are going through the UAE and countries like that. But I don't think we have much of a plan necessarily for thinking about some some more some more of these soft power things like the the purchasing of Manchester City or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it would be very easy for this conversation to veer off into a conversation about uh, football. But I mean, it is actually an interesting case study because precisely as you say there, clubs like Manchester City, Newcastle United, uh, prospective owners of Manchester United, this does have a kind of a geopolitical kind of quality to it. And I mean, I was struck that in, in the book, that the scale of this autocratic challenge or uh, comes on, there's a kind of a broad range, isn't there, that goes, as you say, from Singapore, which is at the light end and, and friendly to the West, and going to the other side of the scale, countries like China, which kind of increasingly, uh, we're coming to the conclusion is not a friendly country towards the West. And, you know, there's increasing tension uh, in that relationship. Well, absolutely. And I think that's one of these important questions of, well, there is no one-size-fits-all foreign policy approach to autocracies in the sense of the United States is not going to have this, or the United Kingdom, for that matter, will not have the same relationship with Singapore that we do with China. I mean, other, other countries have agency, and we have to calibrate our relationships with them based on how they are actually thinking about us. And I, and I think the clear example there is Singapore, where Singapore is a friendly country, generally, certainly. Singaporean officials will tell you that they think the U.S.'s China policy is a little too hawkish at the moment. But generally, they want to engage the United States. They want to participate. They'll continue doing military drills with us and with China at the same time. And I think that's a reasonably you know, a, a effective position and one that aligns with the United States fairly well. Obviously, China's at the other end of the spectrum. And there, there is no way, I think, to sit down and say, all right, what is our policy on autocracies? I think that's too broad. I think it's really thinking, well, what is our policy towards each individual autocracy? Because they're going to be different. I mean, certainly I would say, you know, we are probably closer with the UAE right now than we are with Saudi Arabia. And that's largely because things Mohammed bin Salman has done that irritated the United States, whereas the, the Emiratis are kind of treading a little more carefully. They're participating in normalization with Israel and all these things that the United States cheer, cheers on. And I think it's just a reminder that there is this broad scale, there is a dem an autocratic spectrum in the same way there is a democratic spectrum, whereas you know, are, are Denmark and India and the Philippines all identical as democracies? No, of course not. And I think it's worth remembering that every autocracy is not the Soviet Union or every autocracy is not North Korea, that there really is this broad spectrum of what do autocracies look like. I mean, it's interesting that, I mean, you, one of the, the things that is key to the book is that we definitely have things to learn from these societies which are not democracies. Uh, we have to take uh, what you describe as a no BS approach to the future. I was very interested, though, that you don't just look at modern societies uh, like Singapore. Uh, you also draw on historical ones, for example, ancient China. So how do we use these kind of examples to come up with the kind of best practices and good governance that you think that we need to consider? Sure. I mean, the ancient China example, I think, is really relevant precisely for be not only because did ancient China actually invent this meritocratic way of staffing the civil service and I'm forgetting the exact year, but some 2,000 years ago, essentially, uh, China came up with this system of meritocratically staffing its civil service by having them take tests rather than pulling from what we might call the old boys network today of saying, well, my brother knows X person whose son wants a job in the government, so let's just give him the job. I, certainly, these tests were still geared only to the elites, where to, you know, to read and write and speak at that level, you needed to have come from a certain amount of money. 
but it was a broader expansion of what we would consider meritocracy. And it happened some, you know, a thousand, two, a thousand years before anyone else in the West did it. And I think what's really key about that example is in history shows that in moments of peril, in moments when the Chinese, the ancient Chinese government became very kind of not sterile, but when it became sclerotic and ineffective, they actually doubled down on meritocracy. And they said, well, we actually need to revamp this test or make this test more meritocratic. And I think that is kind of a moment in which we are at. And certainly, again, there's a spectrum of democracies, whereas I think the United Kingdom probably staffs its government in a slightly more meritocratic way than the United States does. Obviously, the the 4,000 political appointments that any U.S. president must fill is a very different process than much of the rest of the world. And I, I think it's a reminder that at this moment when Americans really do feel like the system is somewhat sclerotic, they don't feel like the government is delivering for them, doubling down on meritocracy and actually thinking, well, how can we staff our governments in a more meritocratic way rather than essentially pulling from you know, the connections from Harvard or the connections from Yale or someone's family friend or whatnot. Because I think not only does that weaken performance, I mean, you can talk to career civil servants or career ambassadors or career diplomats who will say, well, when this, you know, very young, kind of unqualified person with great family connections gets this job, it makes the career people feel bad. And when the career people feel bad, they're likely to perform worse or just leave the government, both of which are are bad for the functionality of the U.S. government. And on a broader scale, I think this perception of nepotism in the government's policy space does weaken the connection between those kind of policy elites and the rest of the country, where people who don't grow up, I mean, I grew up in New York City, but people who don't grow up in New York City or Washington or Boston, maybe kind of some of these northeastern uh, northeastern bubbles, they think people who don't grow up there look at the policy world and think, well, these are all the same people coming from the same schools and the same connections. And I think having more expansive programs fast-track programs for young people who just graduated from college and all they want to do is serve in the government, modernizing the process for getting into the career foreign service, which right now you know can take two to three years. It's extremely sclerotic. And I think that all these things could boost the attractiveness of serving in government again. Whereas, I mean, I can think of the people I, with whom I went to undergrad, there are very few people working in, in government. And I think there's the sense of government being toxic and government being slow and, of course, not competitive in terms of wages. And I think some form of meritocracy could go a long way towards fixing that. And I think one key item in terms of meritocracy that I would actually borrow, not from ancient China, but from modern Singapore, would be to pay civil servants and government staffers more competitive wages so they don't feel like they're losing money by serving in the government instead of working for the private sector. With the argument being short, when you staff the government meritocratically, you can pay people more. And a key addition there is you make it easier to actually fire some of these people and say, well, just like at a private company, if you're not performing what you're worth, you know, we'll, we'll let you go. Well, right now, of course, it is very hard to fire a civil servant who might not be, might not be up, to, up to the task. So I do think there are clearly lessons there, both from ancient China and modern Singapore to some extent, that democracies can, can emulate, and I think honestly emulate better. I mean, that is the argument, is democracies are open systems, our institutions are set up to counter corruption, to counter nepotism, to have effective feedback loops in a way, of course, no autocracy does. That's not how autocracies work. Autocracies shutter feedback loops with the intention of kind of making things easier for the person at the top, where the argument being when we can implement some of these reforms, we implement proper meritocracy. My argument is that democracies can do it better. Yeah, I mean, making society more meritocratic is one of the key elements. The book also talks about how governments need to make themselves more accountable. One of the examples that you use there is France. And 
You know, it, it struck me as I was reading, I wonder how recent events with President Macron and pension reform fit into your model, because that seems to speak exactly to the question of trust that you raise in the, in the book. No, absolutely. I mean, I think with France and, and Macron, I mean, France obviously has a history of, of distrust and go distrust of government, honestly, not so dissimilar from the American attitude where Americans, you know, we've never really trusted our government to have massive power in the way maybe the Danes or the English trust in bigger government, I guess. But no, I think you're exactly right that on, on this pension reform, I mean, it's a two year, it's a two year raise. It's not exactly the most substantial thing in the world. He didn't change it from 62 to 72 or from 62 to 64. And that seems like a fairly, I mean, sitting in the States, and I, you know, I've been to France, I know France, I know France, I know the French diplomats, whatever, but it's still, it seemed fairly minor. And I think the fact that it prompted such severe outrage is a demonstration that people across France just don't, like people across the United States, like people across South Korea, don't feel like the government is delivering for them, particularly on an economic front. Where if you look at polls across the democratic world, across the advanced democratic world, People are just less optimistic about their children's futures than they have been in 30, 40 years, where they are not sure that their children will be better off than they've been. And that's a massive problem for democracies, because it, it, I don't really think that democracies can actually maintain their democratic character if people are looking at the democratic system and saying, I don't believe this will deliver for my children. I don't believe it will deliver for me. What about um, technology? That's a huge question in the book and particularly in the United States, actually, and the way you talk about it. I mean, there is an irony, isn't there? Because on the one hand, we have Silicon Valley and the most innovative tech companies in the world. And on the other hand, the United States is in many ways technologically backwards in terms of its systems. It's got a crumbling infrastructure. How do we square that circle? And, and while we're talking about that, I mean, there is sometimes a sense that Asian countries do this better. But that, that seems to be whether they're democracies or autocracy. So I wonder, is that a question of regional priorities and approaches rather necessarily than systems of government? I can answer the second question first. I think it's a little easier. I think for many of those countries, yes, it was a regional prioritization, less so than democracy versus autocracy. Whereas certainly, I think Japan, for many years, it felt when you walked into, went into Tokyo in the 1980s, I think the quote from a New York Times correspondent at the time was, it was like walking into the future of America, but everything worked. And Japan's a democracy, and I think South Korea is a democracy, but of course, China's developed infrastructure as well, so is Singapore. And I think that was a regional understanding of kind of developing later in the sense of building much of this infrastructure in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and an understanding of the connection between infrastructure and growth and delivering for your people and thus having public legitimacy. I think that was understood across autocracies and democracies. But in thinking about the United States, your first question was remarkable to me in thinking about the Silicon Valley and all these amazing tech companies that pop up uh, out of the United States versus a sclerotic infrastructure, the lack of effective high-speed high rail system. It reminds me of why, and this comes up in the trust chapter, why Americans, but also others across Europe, actually trust the private sector much more than they trust the government. Whereas I think there was a reason when people sitting in, you know, New York or sitting in Tennessee or sitting in Alabama or Los Angeles, whatever, look to the government and think the government can't get anything done. It's so sclerotic. Washington is so kind of fragmented at the moment. But look at Tesla or look at Apple. Look at these big companies that are doing amazing things on cars, on technology, on your phones, on, on social media, whatever. And I think it's a reminder of the fact that democracies can drive innovation and have historically driven innovation but that innovation comes from the private sector. I mean, certainly governments can give a helping hand. And it's one of the arguments I've made in the book is, well, 
certainly I think the CHIPS Act, for example, from the Biden administration is a great idea. It's a great idea to basically say we trust the private sector to actually make these innovations, but here's some money and here's some assistance, here's some grants to encourage you to do so and to encourage you to do so on American soil. And that's a very, very smart idea. And I think I, it's in the conclusion of the book where Senator Cornyn, I was at a, an event where he was speaking, and Senator Cornyn is very traditionally conservative in economics. He made this whole comment about saying, you know, I'm very uncomfortable with government involvement in the private sector, but on something like semiconductors, even I believe it is necessary. I believe this idea of the government giving some funds to technology development, but not control over them is really smart. And something I would add to that, and I think this is an unusual suggestion for rebuilding trust in democratic governments, is I think politicians should sit down and realize, well, the public does trust the private sector more than they trust me. So let's find ways to cooperate and let's find ways for the government to actually leverage that trust in the private sector and saying, great, Americans trust Tim Cook more than they trust Joe Biden. Let's get Tim Cook at the White House and collaborate in some type of maybe we can figure out a way to offer subsidies for Apple to expand its uh, footprint in rural parts of the country where I think, and this is the, the particular example here is going to be high-speed internet. I know not Apple specifically, but it is an example of thinking about high-speed internet where it's not profitable to lay high-speed internet cables in parts of the rural United States, the rural United Kingdom, whatever, because there are not enough people who are going to pay for it to actually make it profitable. And I think there's an example there basically saying, well, government could offer subsidies uh, to some of these companies and then actually publicly highlight, well, look at this company that's working with me and look at how we're working together to deliver for you. And not only would that actually deliver, I think, better for the public, it would allow the government to actually take some of that trust from the private sector for its own benefit. And I mean, we've had uh, people on the podcast at different times talking about this kind of thing. I mean, do you think that the government can actually identify correctly what the priorities are and direct in that kind of way? I mean, if you kind of think about uh, something like climate change, for example, arguably Elon Musk uh, and Tesla has done more for climate change than any government directed project would have been able to because it was driven not just by kind of commercial instincts, but also the kind of ability to take risks and push through in ways that would be very, very difficult for any government agency to do. I mean, it does seem to me at times like the government's maybe one or two steps behind, but they usually get there. And I think it's actually one of the ironies, and you hear this kind of in the United States actually versus Europe, it's the irony of kind of the revolving door. And people talk about the revolving door very negatively, conflicts of interest, and certainly that's a real concern. But there is actually some benefit to people going into government who previously worked in companies or people kind of going back and forth because they actually understand how the private sector operates. And I think you're actually seeing that now with the CHIPS Act implementation, where many of the people involved in that were government, then private sector, and are now being brought back into the government to actually make sure the program is effective, to make sure the program understands how to engage the private sector. And I think more of that engagement can be really positive because as you're you're right on things like electric vehicles, on things like chips. The government is not making those. The government is not designing them. The government is not innovating, but the government is identifying, well, where do we want these being built? Or are there specific types of chips or specific types of EV batteries or specific types of rare earth minerals that we want refined in the United States rather than relying on partners in Asia or rather than relying on, on China as China becomes less friendly towards us? And I think clearly the private sector is going to define much of that development. It's on the government to figure out how to best help them, frankly, and how to best leverage their expertise. And I do think the CHIPS Act so far has been a really positive example of this. Of course, the Inflation Reduction Act 
with the subsidies for electric vehicles, uh, electric vehicle batteries has been similar. And I think that there clearly is some overlap here, even if the, the private sector might be one or two, one or two steps ahead. I mean, in some ways, I wonder actually whether it needs some kind of emergency to make these things come together in in sync in the way that you're describing. The pandemic would seem to be a good example of that, something like Operation Warp Speed, where you did actually see the private sector and the government working together to produce this vaccine in, frankly, unimaginably quick time. Absolutely. Unlike in the UK, some of these public-private partnerships have not worked so well in comparison. Operation Warp Speed worked so well because the two parties were so clearly aligned, where from the start, the goal for both the government and the companies was get as many shots out there as soon as possible, get as many people vaccinated. Because, of course, for the government, that's let's reopen the country, let's get back to normal, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas for the company, of course, of course, it's it's that from a moral perspective, but it's also the more shots, the more money. And the goals were clearly aligned from the outset. Or I think on some of these other projects, I mean, infrastructure projects that have stalled in terms of public-private partnerships, there might not be that alignment of goals where maybe for a company, it's almost like the, the old axiom of thinking about a taxi driver, where the taxi driver might actually want to take the longer route because they'll get you, they'll get more money, whereas the passenger wants to get there immediately. And certainly there are things like that that can happen on public-private partnerships. And I think contracts and agreements need to be written to account for that. But overall, I do think there clearly is an opportunity to cooperate there. And I am hopeful that it does not require only emergencies to spur this kind of cooperation. Certainly, Operation Warp Speed is a good example of emergency cooperation. But I think the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, these are new programs that are we're not quite in an emergency on them yet. I mean, we are not in an emergency on electric vehicles. We are not on an emergency on semiconductors, but we kind of see the problem coming. And I actually do think the administration should get, and Congress should get a lot of credit for this is long-term thinking. This is thinking, well, what happens if we are fully reliant on, not fully reliant, but mostly reliant on China for electric vehicle batteries? Or what happens if we're most reliant, mostly reliant on Taiwan for semiconductors and Taiwan can't supply them to us anymore? I think it is a very smart, forward-thinking, and not emergency-induced policy to be thinking about these problems, to actually be enacting plans to increase U.S. manufacturing in these very specific fields. There's been a lot written about democracy uh, recently that's been very uh, gloomy, nihilistic almost, but this book is not one of those. And there is a sense of reading this book about how democracy has shown its resilience over and over again against autocratic or totalitarian regimes and impulses and and so on. Obviously, we shouldn't be complacent, but I I do wonder, having read the book, whether part of the argument is saying that actually we need to have more confidence too. I think that's absolutely the case. I, I really, when I sat down to write this book, I was living in London in 2019, 2020, I've been in New York and then in Washington since, and you walk into a bookstore, all the democracy books are, you know, all about democracy dying, about the allure of autocracy. And there, there's some validity there, but I would like us to be much more confident in ourselves, where the world's most innovative countries are still democracies. If you live in a democracy, you are likely to live longer, you are likely to be richer. And in my argument, you will have, in my view, you will have a richer cultural life. I mean, there's a reason why when you travel around Asia, and I'm thinking Southeast Asia specifically, well, what music are you hearing? It's not Chinese music, despite the vast history, historical ties between China and Southeast Asia. It's K-pop, it's Korean music, or it's American music. Yeah, there, there's a reason why 
I mean, 1Q84, that excellent book, comes out of Japan and not out of China. And this is not to say that autocracies can't innovate or that autocracies can't produce great art. Of course, they can. Of course, people within those systems can. There's, a, of course, great Soviet-era literature. But I do think democracies need to be much more confident in the fact that we still produce the best, the best innovations. We still produce the best art. And I think I'll, I'll bring the conversation back around thinking about the, the football clubs or the soccer clubs. With the exception of maybe the Saudi League that is now trying to build itself up and bring Ronaldo, obviously, to Saudi Arabia. I mean, everyone else, all the other, the rich Gulf states are basically saying, well, let's just buy the British clubs. It's, an, it's a recognition of, well, the British have built something better. And now we want, in, we want in on that. And I think there is a reason why the Premier League is in a democracy or why the NFL, which is now increasingly popular in England and in Germany, is in America. You know, China has spent a ton of money on its soccer league or bringing, bringing all these Americans to go play in the, in the basketball league. And people abroad are not watching that. <laughs> they just aren't. Uh, and I think it is a helpful reminder, and it's particularly on education as well, where it's a, this kind of comment I've made where if you actually look around the world and think about, well, the the authoritarians running some of these richer, these richer uh, autocracies, where are they sending their kids to school? It's Oxford, it's Cambridge, it's Harvard, it's Yale. You know, maybe a few of them in Singapore will stay in Singapore, but they're not really seeking an education in Beijing. Uh, and even in the developing world, people will take the free education from China and then come back to their own country. I think there is reason for democracies to be confident, even if we see these gloomy headlines or things like January 6th. I mean, democracies have a remarkable ability to bounce back, and we have this remarkable ability to self-correct. But I think very few autocracies, if any autocracies, can truly mirror. And that gives me optimism, even though I should clarify the optimism is not, let's sit back on our laurels and relax. I think optimism should actually motivate increased action, which is why I've written the book. But still, definitely reason to be optimistic. So the book is Defeating the Dictators, How Democracy Can Prevail in the Age of the Strongman. It's written by my guest, Charles Dunst, and published by Hodron Stoughton. Uh, but for now, Charles, Tottenham supporter, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you very much. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Aldous, saying thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>